You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of the opening plenary address, which is given by Professor Chris McGinn from Fordham University. His paper was entitled Communicating Tudor Rule in Ireland. Professor McGinn was introduced by Professor Stephen Ellis from NUI Galway. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Christopher McGinn and to chair his plenary address this year at the 7th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference here in NUI Galway. Chris's research and writings on Tudor Ireland are, I think, very well known to scholars of early modern Ireland, even though his face may not be all that familiar to you. Uh, He came here in the late 1990s and financed himself through his doctoral studies by working for Aircom, um, where he was also on a bonus for being able to field questions asked Gaeliger. After completing his PhD on the extension of Tudor rule in Gaelic Leinster, uh, he's remained a a very regular visitor to NUI Galway, spending pretty well every summer here, certainly through the noughties, from May when he finished his teaching in New York until mid-August when he went back for another session. Unfortunately, this timetable meant that he always missed this conference, um, until this year, that is, when we scheduled it a week earlier. But I know that he's kept abreast of um, conference presentations by listening to them on podcasts. Chris was was appointed Assistant Professor of History at Fordham University um, in 2004, and he has twice been promoted to Associate Professor and now Full Professor. In large measure, these promotions reflect the quality and quantity of his research. Um, In 2005, uh, he won the Irish Historical Research Prize of the National University of Ireland for his first book on civilising Gaelic Leinster. And in 2012, uh, Oxford published his second monograph, William Cecil, Ireland and the Tudor State. And he and I have collaborated in writing books together. I think I wrote more of The Making of the British Isles, published in 2007, but he certainly wrote most of The Tudor Discovery of Ireland, published by Four Courts in 2015. And more importantly, the fresh perspectives and the ideas of the book were his. Over the years, um, Chris has helped me out with various projects, ranging from the Oxford uh, DNB, for which he wrote 16 biographies on Tudor Ireland, and The Strangest, uh, a paper on Elizabethan Ireland for a volume in Japanese. Um, Great stuff. Um, (laughs) uh, 
Chris presently holds one of the very few chairs of history in the field of Irish history in a university outside <coughs> Ireland. And his continuance certainly depends on his making the case for the relevance of Ireland and Irish history on the world stage. Most of his colleagues, so he tells me, had never heard of Forecourt's Press when he was appointed. But they do notice his publications in peer-reviewed journals like Historical Journal or Journal of British Studies. He was also director of the Institute of Irish Studies in Fordham at a time when students were still being attracted to solve the Northern Ireland problem. An ability to attract students to lectures is, of course, a basic skill, particularly in a history department of well over 30 with specialisms in different aspects of uh, world history. As for his teaching, the rather brutal American contribution to student-centred learning, rate my professors, gives us some clue as to Chris's effectiveness <laughs> and popularity as a teacher. Here's one example. Really, really interesting lectures on fascinating parts of history. Clearly loves to teach and the subjects he's teaching. Willing to read paper drafts before they're due. Always open and willing to answer questions if you drop by his office or after class. Looks to see if you read based on evidence you use in the exams. Cares about students and really nice. <laughs> among, other, among other comments, I see that he's a hard marker, uh, <laughs> but a fabulous teacher. Uh, you leave a better writer and the info sticks with you, and his Irish accent makes lectures even more interesting. <laughs> Finally, um, if you're selling Irish history to a foreign audience, you can't assume they'll be satisfied with the most oppressed nation ever kind of approach. And I think that one of Chris's particular skills has been to project for the Tudor conquest uh, a clash of civilizations and two traditions. He writes a lot more about the Gaelic world than I ever dared to, but he also writes about frontiers, state formation and English law and culture, which places his Tudor conquest closer to the central themes of Renaissance monarchy. This evening, he's introducing a topic which promises a fresh approach to government of a Tudor frontier region by an absentee monarch, communicating Tudor rule in Ireland. Professor Chris McGinn. Um, thank you, Stephen, for the kind introduction. I could have done without the bit about rape my professor, but, you know. Um, I would also like to express my gratitude to the conference organisers for inviting me here to give this plenary address. Um, as Steve said, this is my first time at a Tudor Stewart Ireland conference um, to be able to experience this gathering now in its seventh year for the first time as an invited speaker, and to do so here in Galway um, is a real privilege for me. I'm presently engaged in a project which aims to explore how the Tudors communicated their rule in Ireland. It is my intention here today to share some of my preliminary thinking and findings on this subject with the hope that it will stimulate discussion and generate some questions which will aid me in shaping and sharpening my thinking about communication in a Tudor context. My ultimate goal is to use communication as a means of opening up, as Steve says, a fresh line of historical inquiry about the Anglo-Irish relationship in Tudor times. 
it is potentially vast subject and quite slippery as a historical concept because communication can be taken to mean a host of things and can be approached in any number of ways. I am concerned less with communication in the broadest sense, that is, the act of imparting or exchanging information or thoughts by anyone in any way, than with the relationship between communication and the making and the execution of Tudor political policy for Ireland. Communication permeated and animated English government. It was evident and at work in the government's collection of information concerning Ireland, in the transmission within government circles of knowledge and understanding of Ireland, and in the government's ability to retain, access, and employ knowledge and information. Communication was essential to the functioning of Tudor rule in Ireland. A second and related concern of mine is to explore how the Tudors sought to communicate the Crown's aims and objectives in Ireland. Far from being self-evident, as it was in England, Tudor rule was something which had to be more explicitly defined, more carefully demonstrated, and more clearly articulated in a country where the Crown was a distant presence and where royal authority was incomplete and frequently the subject of violent resistance. I would like, then, to discuss communication in the spirit of these two concerns, which may be thought of as being chiefly focused on operational forms of communication and more abstract conceptual forms of communication. First, I will discuss an important operational aspect of how Tudor rule was communicated, the emergence during Elizabeth's reign of a crown-sponsored postal system. The posts were intended to regularize, to facilitate, and to expedite the transfer of an ever-increasing volume of information flowing between two non-contiguous Tudor kingdoms. So here we have it. Uh, the new system came to operate on an officially designated route between Dublin and London. And what you can see here, it was one of six routes that would emerge to link the extremities of the Tudor territories to a court that, by the later 16th century, had come to confine itself to the southeast of England. By about 1600, letters from Dublin carried on a postal route. The one that concerns us is the one to Hollyhead. Um, letters from Dublin on this postal route regularly reached the court in four days nearly a quarter of the time it would generally have taken in Henry VIII's reign. This was more than just a bureaucratic innovation or a mundane one. The development of a postal service was symptomatic of the expansion and intensification of Tudor rule in Ireland, part of, part of a wider process of English state formation. I will then move on to consider how the Tudors sought to portray their rule in Ireland. What did the Tudors seek to achieve in Ireland? And how do they communicate or articulate this message? These are fundamental questions seldom asked, but ones which begin to get at the heart of the Anglo-Irish relationship itself, and which, I think, can begin to be answered by trying to identify the overarching message which the Tudors sought to communicate with regard to Ireland. This line of questioning will force us to consider the, the degree to which, or whether, the Tudors accommodated or altered their message on Ireland's relationship to the crown to accord with the norms, expectations, and desires of opinion in Ireland, England, and in a wider Europe, all while events on the ground were defining and driving the Anglo-Irish relationship in real terms. I would like, before I begin with that, to explain briefly how I arrived at a study of communication and to situate the work within the historiography of Tudor Ireland and historical scholarship more broadly like all historians, the question I ask, the questions I ask are conditioned by the present, conditioned by the fact that I am living through an era which, I believe, 
will in time be seen as a revolution in communication facilitated by the rise of digital technology. I remarked at the start, and Steve remarked at the start, how I had never attended a conference like this before today. But as Steve said, the existence and the easy availability of digital recordings of these proceedings has allowed me, though I was often thousands of miles away, to hear and absorb the information conveyed at past conferences. And no doubt, which I think this has something to do with, others who are not here today will be able to engage with what I have to say through the same medium. In the political realm, too, governments now employ digital technology to better and more directly communicate their message. That is, their raison d'etre, their narrative, their policies and ideas. The Taoiseach and each of the government departments, for example, has its own Twitter account. So as to communicate in no more than 140 character bursts directly with constituents, citizens and many more besides. Of course, the political figure who has come to be most closely associated with this new form of communication is the American president, Mr. Trump. And there he is. Uh, He has transformed Twitter posts, the most innocuous of things, seemingly, into communicative weapons, using them as blunt, though often highly effective means to cut through competing forms of media to deliver his message. Never before in history has a leader been able, with such ease and with such frequency, and it must be said with such breathtaking impulsivity, to communicate with so many. By the same token, never before have so many been able to experience such intimacy with the unmediated thoughts of an immensely powerful political figure. Queen Elizabeth II sent her first tweet in 2014 as Walter Badgett uh, rolled in his grave. Now, I will be the first to admit that there is great danger in applying a modern concept like communication to Tudor times. Dangerous, too, is the temptation to give those aspects of communication which are entirely mental or modern constructs, like political messaging, admittedly, material or intellectual existence in an age which knew no such thing. Indeed, the training as a historian, which I received here in Galway, was, it might be said, philosophically opposed in terms of interpretation and even use of language, to any such form of presentism or reification. I learned to value here the alleged purity of sticking as close as was possible to the original sources, to pursue only those concepts which could be discovered in the evidence, not to impose concepts on the sources or bend the evidence to fit a concept. Yet this, for lack of a better term, nuts and bolts approach to history has its limitations, not to say an innate dryness about it. It is also terribly out of fashion, particularly in America where I work. Um, (laughs) And how much more can a nuts and bolts history um, tell us about Tudor Ireland anyway? There was a time, until relatively recently, when we lacked even reliable narratives of stretches of the period. Yet I am nowadays often confronted by the simple fact that a lot of really excellent work has been done on Tudor Ireland over the last half century. It is, I think, an increasingly difficult field in which to do something entirely new. So the present work is very much an effort uh, on my own part to reconcile my own nuts and bolts tendencies uh, and training with the many opportunities which, which a conceptual approach can offer, especially one that is so naturally interdisciplinary as communication, that we are living in an age of digital revolution, which has placed massive amounts of information at our fingertips and which has created multiple modes of instantaneous communication, makes a study of this kind all the more timely and relevant, I hope. 
Now, to better understand communication in the Europe of 500 years ago, I delved into the growing body of secondary literature which exists on this subject. Perhaps the most obvious entree, in addition to the many technical studies of letter writing, was to look at the physical infrastructure which facilitated written and oral communication in Tudor times. Um, and here we have one of these work by Mark Brache, a historical geographer. He's a leading authority on early modern communication networks. And this is his land, travel, and communication in Tudor and Stuart, England. It represents his crowning study of a career devoted to recovering the role which road travel played in the emergence of a unified English kingdom. An important aspect of Brechet's exhaustive archival researches is his concern with the birth and the development of the postal service. He argues how this institutional development revolutionized the transfer of information and ideas and was the central to the emergence of early modern or, or of it, um, to the emergence of modern England, allowing as it did for the quote concept of the state to become more deeply embedded in the popular consciousness. Brechet showed that Ireland was a part of this broader process, though he refrained from exploring the effects in Ireland and for Tudor rule there of improved communication with London. But as suggested above, communication can be thought of as a concept as well as a purely functional act facilitated by physical things like letters and roads. Which brings us to this. Um, there are several recent studies, notably these two, I found these most influential um, uh, those by Fernando Buza and Filippo de Vivo, devoted to Spain and Venice, respectively, which seek to explore communication for the insight it can offer on the human desire to know and government's desire to, to prevent people from knowing, to control information in early modern Europe. Now, the, the intellectual origins of this approach can be located in what we may refer to broadly as cultural history. And more specifically, in its two closely related offshoots, the history of the book, the history of print culture, fields which essentially hold that the invention of the printing press transform culture and society by placing print media in the hands of the largest number of people in history. Another outgrowth of this so-called cultural turn is interest by early modernists in the act of letter writing as a function of um, an epistolary culture, which it is argued served to link uh, later forms of communication to an emerging public sphere. In this vein, too, and perhaps more direct, directly relevant to what I'm doing, is Kevin Sharp's groundbreaking Selling the Tudor Monarchy. Um, here, Sharp argued that the Tudors deliberately managed, manipulated, and projected what he calls representations of the crown through both visual and textual methods in an effort to consolidate and then augment their power. For Sharp, however, the projection of monarchy was only half the story. The other half was the public, the men and women of England, who through their actions, who through their very being, quote, participated in the construction of images in power in what was, these are his words, a dialogue or negotiation with authority and representation of rule. This work, the first of a trilogy devoted to monarchical representation in England, was proudly interdisciplinary. It made use of a vast array of sources, the material, the visual, the literary, and the more traditionally political, in an effort to unite what the author saw as the stubbornly separate bodies of scholarship devoted to cultural and political history. While not explicitly a study of communication, like the works mentioned above, Sharp showed that representation could just as easily be understood as a form of communication. Yet Sharp's book provoked criticism in a way that other cultural studies, particularly from the continent, did not. 
In short, historians of Tudor England can be a conservative lot, especially those whose focus is political history. Some question the basic assumptions at the heart of Sharp's work, specifically his acceptance that there existed in Tudor times a political consciousness identical to our own, and that it was capable of understanding actual or real events and representations as one and the same. Here, then, was cultural history clashing with old-fashioned nuts-and-bolts history, the conceptual colliding with the factual, the real clashing with the represented. Still, as Peter Lake's recent efforts, stimulating efforts, to recover Catholic popular politics in Elizabethan England attests, the bell sounded by Sharp's application of a culturally-leaning interdisciplinarity to the study of political history cannot be unrung. This fundamental difference in approach, which exists amongst historians of Tudor England, is not as pronounced amongst Irish historians. This owes more, I think, to the limitations imposed by the evidence than to any natural unanimity in the field over how history should be practiced or how the evidence should be interpreted. Sharp, for example, made great use of sources directly related to and often generated by the monarchy itself, like royal progresses, coronations, processions, court masks, coin portraits, and so on and so forth. And there were many more sources available to him pertaining to the monarchy, which were generated in England just beyond the court, such as plays, prayers, news sheets, poems, and polemics. The available evidence for scholars like Buza mentioned above in De Vivo is equally varied and extensive, allowing them to speak with great confidence about public reception of official communication. De Vivo, working on, De Ven- on, on Venice, for example, was able to use graffiti, you know, extant graffiti on walls in Venice. For us, the evidential record for Tudor Ireland, uh, in sharp contrast, is strikingly different. It is overwhelmingly textual. There are few material or visual survivals from the period in comparison to England or the continent. The texts, moreover, survive in the main as a rich and diverse body of manuscripts uh, preserved by an English government seeking to consolidate and extend its authority. It is thus a happily large, but an exceptionally political and an often one-sided kind of written record which historians must engage with. Any sustained discussion of communication in Tudor Ireland will require a good deal of reading anew state sources for what they can reveal about the English government's relationship with information and its efforts to communicate its will. In the study of Tudor rule in Ireland, which follows now, I will pursue aspects of these two approaches to communication, first the operational and then the conceptual. On the 17th of March, 1538, Leonard Gray wrote a letter addressed to Henry VIII, It was a standard official dispatch from the king's representative in Ireland in Tudor times. It detailed, among other things, how O'Connor, a once recalcitrant Irish lord, had lately come to Dublin to make submission to him. It also expressed Gray's ardent desire to be relieved of his office so that he might return to his native England. Gray signed, sealed, and then gave the letter to his nephew, who was to make his way from Dublin to England where he would deliver it to King Henry. As was typical of Gray... This dispatch was nearly identical to another which he wrote that day addressed to Thomas Cromwell, the king's minister. Gray's nephew, Dudley, as he is known in the sources, a young soldier in the Irish service, was to carry both letters, along with a copy of the terms of O'Connor's submission, which was enclosed with the letter addressed to Cromwell. Dudley would travel some 370 miles on foot, by boat, and almost certainly on horseback. With a fair wind behind him and barring any early spring storms, his journey to the royal court 
then hovering in the vicinity of Westminster would typically take a little less than two weeks. Communication between Ireland and England had always been conducted in this manner. A messenger was entrusted with written information and instructed to deliver it personally to a specified individual or individuals. Most often, the messengers were clients, servants, or in Gray's case, a relative of the writer or of the intended recipient. The delivery of a letter by a familiar and therefore a trusted face was important. To receive personal and potentially sensitive information from the hands of a complete stranger would have been, de- would have been deemed intrusive and dishonorable for most people in the early 16th century. This was equally true for personal communication as it was for official communication, but obviously the latter has survived in much greater quantities. Sometimes the messenger was a government official who, traveling to or from court on other business, was expected to bring letters, reports, and other material with him, often unrelated to him or a specific mission. The crown also, especially during times of increased royal activity, was known to make payments to messengers to convey batches of the king's letters from Ireland into England, though rarely it would seem in the opposite direction. These messengers were often expected to complement the written material which they delivered by offering additional detail and information to the recipient or recipients orally. Indeed, in a pre-modern age, when information obtained face-to-face was valued more highly than information derived from words on paper, the oral communication of information was an essential function of messengers. Um, When John Allen, in a letter to Cromwell's secretary, came to the subject of the state of Ireland, that is, the situation in Ireland, he gave voice to a central but often unspoken feature of communication in Tudor times. As you can see here, what diligence I used in those matters, this said bearer can partly advertise you. I would you did know it as well if you had seen it. Shane O'Neill tortured his own messenger and cut off his ear because O'Neill believed to have been uh, he believed his messenger to have misrepresented his mind during a meeting with the Queen's representative. This vital oral component of messengers' responsibilities is, of course, almost entirely lost to historians, who must necessarily rely on the survival of the written word entrusted to messengers. But we can well imagine that Dudley was, upon his delivery of his letters at court, also interviewed by Cromwell and maybe even by King Henry himself. Under Elizabeth, this centuries-old mode of communication was augmented by the emergence of a state-sponsored postal system. Beginning late in the reign of Henry VIII and accelerating under Elizabeth, the reach and the responsibilities of Tudor government in Ireland were everywhere increasing. There were new counties, English colonies, provincial councils, a substantial military uh, establishment, and all of this appeared alongside older institutions of English government that had existed in Ireland for centuries. This steadily growing framework of Tudor government generated increased amounts of information. It also demanded decisions, and decisions for the direction, pace, and nature of English rule in Ireland were made in England. And these decisions were made by people, ultimately by the Queen herself, who relied almost entirely on the information brought to them by messenger and by post. Regular and up-to-date intelligence was crucial when Tudor rule there was not only increasingly robust, but often the subject of, as we've seen, violent resistance. It was not that the messenger system which had been employed for centuries was unreliable. The records really seldom tell of messengers going missing or being waylaid traveling to their destination, nor was it egregiously slow by the standards of the day. Rather, 
In Elizabeth's reign, the several military crises brought on by the rapid extension of English government demanded a more expeditious mode of communication information which was time-sensitive. The survival of Tudor rule in Ireland came in many respects to depend on accurate and current information. So here we have two, two maps. The one on the left is from Henry's reign and the one on the right is Elizabeth's reign. The one on the right shows you the six poster routes and the other of the, the initial two. So early in Henry's reign, as here on the left, letters from the northern easternmost extremities of the Tudor territories could be conveyed to court by messengers on two roads. The creation and maintenance of a royal post on the Dover Road to the southeast and the Berwick or North Road represented a great leap forward for Tudor government in terms of its um, ability to receive information and to communicate its will in England and beyond. The royal post operated in a system of, quote, standing posts, which relied on a chain of riders and horses, quote, laid at towns which were at the ready to relay, um, to relay letters one rider to another, who in return received an exchequer wage. This system, modelled on an old English posting system which operated along the ancient pilgrims route from Canterbury to Dover, and likely created in emulation of more recently established postal arrangements within the Habsburg lands, could be slower than a lone rider riding, quote, in or through post. And here is a distinction here, laid posts and through posts. But standing posts allowed for the steady and consistent delivery of letters. After all, even the swiftest rider would have to stop, to sleep, to eat, and change horses on longer journeys. But a messenger bound for court out of Ireland, like Dudley was in 1538, would have to make his own way, almost certainly by land, southeastwards from the port of Holyhead. We cannot say whether Dudley was given the necessary credentials, a placard, to procure at the king's price horses and guides in the king's name in order to speed him on his way across England. Nor can we say definitively how long it took him to carry out his mission. There is a possibility that Dudley did not leave Ireland immediately upon being entrusted with his uncle's letters of 17th March. But if he did, he must have made very good time Dudley had seemingly already returned to Dublin by the 20th April when he was sent back to court to deliver more letters. Indeed, the journey against the prevailing winds from east to west might take as long as a month. But travelling to Ireland in early spring, Dudley would would seem to have done it in well under half that time. The importance of the information which young Dudley carried into England on Gray's behalf paled in significance compared to the information then being carried to court by four royal commissioners. Led by Anthony St. Ledger, the commissioners had spent the previous six months in Ireland travelling around and gathering a range of information about government and society. Their experiences, St. Ledger's most of all, would inform Tudor policy for Ireland for the remainder of the reign and arguably beyond. The commissioners demonstrated a marked uh, reluctance to articulate their findings in writing, even in the face of King Henry's stated impatience. In April 1538, their work complete, They returned to England to communicate with the king in person. They deliberately did that. It is conceivable that the party of commissioners and Dudley crossed paths heading in different directions at this time. Yet Dudley and the royal commissioners were, in essence, fulfilling the same function, carrying and communicating to the king and his councillors detailed information about a place which was still largely unknown at the Tudor court. Over the next two decades, as Tudor rule in Ireland expanded, Successive Tudor monarchs continued to rely on this traditional mode of communication. Late in 1548, 
Edward Bellingham, by then the governor of Ireland, sent John Isham uh, as his messenger to court. After months of campaigning at the head of a greatly fortified English army, Bellingham wished to impress upon Protector Somerset the current political and military situation in the kingdom. Bellingham also hoped that Somerset would find occasion to allow Isham, quote, to declare the state of things here, by whom no doubt of that your honour may gather more intelligence than can be committed to a great deal of writing. Next month, Isham wrote to Bellingham that he was, quote, once since my coming before their honours, that is before the council, declaring the state of that realm, the which they like well, and I think I shall be called for again. And after that, I trust, I trust shortly to see your lordship. Nearly a decade later, a plan to launch a major military expedition against the Scots in Ulster, conceived by the Earl of Sussex, then the Lord Deputy, was delivered to Queen Mary by Sussex's brother, Henry, another familiar, who was instructed to expound on the written articles he, saw, uh, he carried over, he carried out of Ireland. This method of communication was no different at the start of Elizabeth's reign. Sussex, in England at the time of the young queen's accession, was handed instructions for the government of Ireland almost certainly after a period of face-to-face consultations on the subject with Elizabeth and her counsellors. In this instance, Sussex served as his own messenger as he returned to Ireland to carry out the royal will. The availability, beginning really by the mid-1550s, of more detailed evidence of royal expenditure in Ireland allows us to reconstruct aspects of the operation of the messenger system between the kingdoms. Individual messengers carrying letters typically made round trips, travelling from Ireland to court or vice versa. The going rate for such an undertaking early in Elizabeth's reign seemed to have been about £14. Messengers, of course, had to pass over water to carry out their mission. So the Crown regularly hired boats and mariners to shuttle them across the Irish Sea. In early 1560, for instance, William Tyrrell of Hoth received £46, quote, for the transporting of messengers at sundry times with uh, letters to the Queen's Council from the head of Hoth to Hollyhead as touching the affairs of the realm, and for transporting like messengers from thence to the deputy and council. The next stage of the journey after Hollyhead was overland, but the details of the route these messengers took at this time after disembarking are unfortunately lacking. What we begin to see more vividly in the early 1560s was probably a continuation of earlier practice. More than a half a century earlier, during Poynings' expedition to Ireland, the Crown paid out over £77 to, quote, messengers conveying letters from the treasurer to the King of England. And later, following Kildare's rebellion, a captain in the Royal Army received £10 to deliver letters to Henry VIII. Yet what had changed, and what was changing, was the frequency with which messengers in the royal service had to travel to and from Ireland. The arrival there of the Earl of Sussex in 1556 inaugurated a period of frenetic government activity, driven by a desire to see his actions redound to his reputation as one of England's most prominent noblemen, and buoyed by liberal mid-Tudor expenditure, Sussex campaigned widely. But it was his push into Ulster which came to define his career in Ireland. For it was there where Sussex found his nemesis in Shane O'Neill. The combination of O'Neill's power and the remoteness of his territory from the centres of English influence presented the Earl with the greatest military challenge of a Tudor commander that, that a Tudor commander had yet faced in Ireland. In 1561, having already campaigned twice against O'Neill to little purpose, Sussex resolved to lead a major ex, um, expedition against him. It was the only way, Sussex insisted, that the recalcitrant chief could be brought to heel. Sussex liked to be kept informed. 
He traveled to court frequently and went so far as to leave his servant behind to attend on the council so that he might report back to him. By then, Sussex had found an ally at court in William Cecil, who recognized the importance to the new regime of defeating O'Neill. Cecil also liked to be kept informed. And it was he, more than any of the Queen's counselors in England, who was responsible for supporting Sussex's projected expedition. Cecil was thus especially receptive to Sussex's request, made some time prior to the Earl's departure for Ireland in May 1561, that posts should be laid in England to expedite the transfer of information. Sussex apparently chose the seven locations between the court and Hollyhead, probably informed by the path he had worn out to court. This first ever attempt to establish a postal route between England and Ireland was later remembered in Hollinshed's Chronicles, where it is remembered. Um, and because of these, troubled, these troublesome times, it were meet advertisements should go from Her Majesty and Council to the deputy, and so likewise from his lordship to them. Order was taken for the more speedy conveyance of letters that there should be set posts appointed between London and Ireland. The importance of communication was clearly something which Tudor officials understood and sought to improve. However, the establishment of the posts failed to expedite communication sufficiently to aid Sussex in his campaign. Cecil expressed his frustration at the lack of information in a 25th July letter to Sussex. Quote, I was not so perplexed with lack of intelligence from your lordship and that realm at any time since I served in this court. Cecil claimed that he had not received the letter in nearly a month and that the absence of intelligence was leading many at court to countenance, quote, foul rumors of Sussex's overthrow. Sussex, of course, was at this time on the march and had, in fact, written letters to the Queen and to Cecil more than a week earlier. But these letters written at the Earl's encampment on the outskirts of Ulster had not reached court. With no information coming in, Cecil was blind to events in Ireland, helpless. He wrote to Sussex again, quote, I still deferred from day to day to send any letters, hoping surely to have heard from your lordship. But yet seeing no letters coming, I could not drive of time, but I've thought me to beseech you that howsoever fortune falleth there to let me know it. Militarily speaking, Cecil's ignorance of events should not have mattered all that much. After all, it was Sussex, not Cecil, who was in command of the Queen's forces bearing down on O'Neill. But, but Cecil's letter uh, written to Sussex the following month offers a vivid insight into the real consequences wrought by slow communications. This is what Cecil says. It's imponderable as usual, written by, by William Cecil. Your letters of 8th of August, uh, sent by Sir William Fitzwilliam, came to the court with him on Tuesday last being the 19th of this month. And upon Wednesday, which was yesterday, came by post your letters to him and me dated the 14th. So as you may well judge how hard it was in many parts impossible to address unto you such aid as you required with such speed as by your letters you did, which was by the 25th of this month. So there's two things at work here. Um, the letters getting to court by post got there in six days. Fitzwilliam carried them in the traditional route. It took him 11 days. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Sussex wanted troops to make an assault against O'Neill by the 25th. Now, Sussex, in the meanwhile, had lately been handed a defeat by O'Neill. He was requesting additional men and money to be sent out of England before he launched his major assault. Upon receipt of Sussex's request on the 20th of August, Cecil noted privately in a separate paper the difficulty of sending troops to Ireland speedily. 
there was indeed no way that the support which Sussex requested could reach him in time. The Earl decided to wait, and that meant delaying the assault. Now, for Elizabeth, delay was something of a virtue. But delay for one of her military commanders often meant paralysis and increased greatly the likelihood of a sudden change in political direction. Sure enough, as news of Sussex's defeat made its way to court, Elizabeth changed her mind, deciding instead to accede to O'Neill's request to come before her to present his case. With letters from court taking about 12 days to reach him, Sussex moved into Ulster without reinforcements, unknowing of the change royal directive. The Earl ravaged parts of O'Neill's country, but failed in the end, even after the arrival of additional troops on the 21st of September, a full month later, to engage his adversary with whom he was shortly forced to conclude a humiliating truce. Postal arrangements continued to function in this manner until late 1565. It was then that the council revisited the issue of the laid post toward Ireland. Henry Sidney had just been appointed to succeed Sussex as governor, and the council took the opportunity to inquire whether the post which which presently stood 30 miles apart, might be planted, as they put it, more thicker and made 20 miles apart, quote, for the better and more speedier conveyance of letters. The council also wished to know whether to continue the laid posts or otherwise to have a through post. In other words, a chain of riders or a, or a single rider running, I'm, I'm going all the way through. And which of the two was the faster mode of conveyance? The matter was left up to Sydney, then en route to Ireland. By 1565, more than ever, information needed to flow between the kingdoms expeditiously. Sidney was traveling armed with an ambitious plan for government, which had emerged after months of consultation with Cecil, the council, and Elizabeth. So it is surprising that Sidney recommended in November that the laid post be discontinued. It is surprising, too, that Cecil, whose thirst for information had only increased with the dispatch to Ireland of his friend Sidney, consented to their abolition. But ever prepared to cut costs where possible, Elizabeth's council ordered that the post be discharged. Royal posts, this time terminating in Chester, were reinstated in 1573, when Elizabeth was then being prevailed upon to use the um, colonizing venture then underway in Ulster as a, prelude, as a prelude to a countrywide royal offensive. But within months, the posts were again discharged as the Queen first procrastinated and then decided against committing to such action in Ireland. At the end of the decade, the Desmond and Baltinglass rebellions led to the reappointment of the posts once again. This time, 15 posts were laid between London and Hollyhead, where a bark to convey letters was retained, a measure of the seriousness with which, with which the Crown took these rebellions. But once the worst of the fighting had passed, Elizabeth resolved, once again, to discharge the posts. Thomas Randolph, master of the posts in England, protested in vain, quote, her majesty's service will be hindered thereby, her charges nothing diminished, and the country miserably troubled. It would ultimately take the threat posed by Tyrone's rebellion and the genuine military crisis which followed O'Neill's victory at the Yellow Ford for the post to be reinstated, as we'll see in 1599. Elizabeth's death and the loosening of the royal purse strings that followed allowed for the royal post to continue under King James. It is true that the operation of the posts were markers of periods of sharply increased levels of communications between the court and Ireland. But the flow of official information to court never stopped. 
In the absence of officially designated posts, the responsibility for maintaining communication with Ireland was assumed, as in previous years, by private individuals. At Chester, for example, a man called William Mayo and later a man called Peter Proby entered into private compositions with the Crown to convey messengers and letters to and from Ireland. This explains Randolph's comment that the Crown would end up paying for its information regardless of whether the royal posts were functioning. Nevertheless, this unofficial Crown-funded system operated effectively. Proby in particular availed of some of the former standing posts, subcontracting the postmasters at them to expedite the delivery of letters. There we go. It was by this means that a letter, and this is it here, uh, from the Dublin administration dated 25th September 1596, reached the council in four days. It is a rare survival of postal endorsements. Apparently, you'll see the postal endorsements all the way on the right at the bottom and then all the way on the right. Um, they were written on a foil outside of a packet of letters, and typically the foil was discarded. So we really have very few of them, but this is an example of some of them. Um, so we can see that only that it was endorsed, quote, on the left-hand side, deliver these in haste, 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 post-haste for life, life, for Her Majesty's most special affairs. But also on the right, the times at which the packet passed through the four stages between Chester and Greenwich. You see that there on the left, Chester the 28th of September, four in the morning, then the uh, the mayor of Chester, William Alderson, signed off on it, and so on and so forth. Two days after this letter, uh, a letter from Dublin reached Robert Cecil in only three days' time. The sea crossing was made in just 32 hours. The subsequent re-engagement of the Royal Post toward Ireland in early 1599, the height of the Nine Years' War, uh, did not improve uh, much of the speed or the reliability of communications beyond what had already been achieved. Rather, their reactivation in 1599 was intended to reduce royal expenditure in anticipation of the torrent of communication which the Earl of Essex's arrival in Ireland with the largest army to leave England in Elizabeth's reign would shortly give rise. More than a century earlier, the Crown was forced to employ a friar to spy amongst the O'Burns territory that lay just south of Dublin, but was largely unknown to royal government. Whatever information um, that friar gleaned was probably communicated to the Poynings-led administration in Dublin. It is unknown whether this information ever was communicated back to Henry VII. It is a measure of the improved communications between Ireland and England that in September 1596, Elizabeth's council at Greenwich, this document here, learned of a Spanish landing in, distant, in the distant northwest, lately shired as, Donegal, uh, as County Donegal, four days after the information was secretly passed to the Dublin government about two weeks after the Spaniards landed. The improved communications between Ireland and England outlined here may be understood as symptomatic of the growing integration of Ireland into a Tudor multiple monarchy ruled from London. But to see the binding of Ireland to London in a pattern not unlike Dover or Berwick is too neat and altogether too teleological. Such an interpretation also overlooks something which the on-again, off-again appearance of the royal post towards Ireland makes clear, that Tudor rule was a contested thing, and a violently contested thing at that. The urgency of the 1596 letters exhorting the council to defend Ireland against invasion and brewing rebellion, just like Sussex's earlier campaigns against O'Neill, show that communication in an Anglo-Irish context was inseparable from armed conflict. This aspect of Tudor rule, familiar to historians as, quote, the Tudor or the Elizabethan conquest of Ireland, is probably the most obvious and, I'd say, the most important approach to the study of the period. 
Less obvious, but no less important, is the fact that the Tudors did not see themselves engaged in a conquest. They sought to communicate a very different narrative of their relationship with an objective in Ireland. The Tudors recognized the conquest of Ireland, all right. That conquest, however, had occurred centuries earlier, in the 12th century, during Henry II's reign. That great military and administrative achievement was central to Tudor thinking. The English crown sovereignty over Ireland and its people, all of them, derive from this conquest. Not from the Pope, not from Parliament. The ultimate aim of the Tudors was to restore Ireland to its imagined former glory through the selective use of military force and what was believed to be the transformative and clearly superior powers of English law, culture, and justice. But the people of Ireland, as subjects owed their prince, was loyalty, obedience, and the willingness to embrace all things English. This is how Elizabeth understood the Anglo-Irish relationship. She saw it in these terms even in the last years of her life, uh, in the last years of her life, when her Irish kingdom was engulfed by rebellion, emboldened by the invasion of her continental foe, which was harnessing the explosive potential of nationality, Irishness, and religion, Catholicism. In early 1599, just as the royal posts were being reactivated, she resolved to dispatch to Ireland a grand army led by an even grander peer. But remarkably, she also felt compelled in a proclamation to explain her decision so as to combat the apparently widespread belief in Ireland that what she intended was conquest. This is the proclamation, 31st March, 1599. Uh, some of her subjects, the proclamation read, rebelled, quote, out of a strong but misconceived opinion that we intended an utter extirpation and rooting out of that nation and conquest of the country. Now, I know you can't read that. Um, this is the relevant bit here. Touching the apprehension of conquest, we do hereby profess to the world that we are so far from any such purpose as the very name of conquest seemeth so ridiculous to us, as we cannot imagine upon what ground it could enter into any man's conceit that our actions, tending only to reduce a simple and barbarous rabble of misguided rebels, should need any such title of conquest. Robert Cecil, in Star Chamber, echoed his Queen's line of argument in a speech, asking rhetorically, quote, um, and really mockingly in a way, should the queen make conquest of all of Ireland again, then must she also root out all of the blood and race of that people and plant anew. In other words, Ireland had been conquered long ago. The notion that Elizabeth would conquer her own kingdom was preposterous. But this apprehension of conquest was in fact a recurring one. Nearly 20 years earlier, facing the Munster and Leinster rebellions, 1579-1583, Elizabeth issued a similar proclamation in Ireland. Those rebels, she claimed, did what they did through, quote, a certain malicious, traitorous, and false brute commonly given out there that Her Majesty should have a determination to make a new conquest of that realm. This survives, um, to my knowledge, not as a proper proclamation, but in draft, Cecil went back and put in new above the line. So a new conquest of that realm, already her own with a further intent to extirp utterly the natural-born subjects of the same, the people universally of that realm, and this is key, which either of the blood of England or of Ireland, both being to her imperial crown equally subjects. She cannot think herself greatly wronged 
by this slanderous and malicious brute, rumour in other words. Now, such public statements of royal intent in Ireland were rare, and it may be argued that Elizabeth's words were little more than the knee-jerk reactions of an aloof queen only moved to address her subjects by the perils of rebellion. But her sentiments are generally in keeping with earlier Tudor attitudes toward the conquest of Ireland. Following the famous declaration of Henry VIII as King of Ireland, Henry had a medal struck, which acknowledged the changed royal style. The reverse of the medal is in the British, uh, in the British Museum. The reverse of the medal um, reads, when translated from the Latin, to spare the conquered and subdue the proud. This quote from Virgil captures something what the king and later his children sought to accomplish in Ireland, or thought they were accomplishing in Ireland. The Tudors would be surprised to learn that historians refer to the sum of their efforts with regard to Ireland as conquest. Still, the Tudors, and Elizabeth in particular, clearly had a problem communicating their central aims in Ireland. The Act for Kingly Title, which we mentioned, was meant to make clear that kings of England were, by right of Henry II's conquest in the 12th century, kings of Ireland too. They simply had not been so called until 1541. The act was, not, was, uh, was necessary not only to dispel the old notion, especially prevalent among the Irish, it would seem, that the sovereignty of Ireland was the Pope's to bestow, but to address the fact that, quote, the Irishmen and inhabitants in Ireland have not been so obedient to the king's highness as they of right and according to their allegiance and bounden duties ought to have been. But how to communicate this momentous news? The bill, which becomes the act, was read several times, once in Irish, before both houses of parliament, which, for the first time in history, included, uh, included a sitting Irish lord, a sitting Irish peer, and Irish onlookers. There followed a great celebration and a well-attended mass to mark the occasion. St. Ledger issued a proclamation announcing Henry as king and released prisoners to mark what he called the triumph. True, all of this was confined to Dublin and the vast majority of Irish leaders were not at this parliament. But an influential few were. And while O'Neill, the most important Irish lord, arguably, uh, was not, his messenger was. He was immediately dispatched to his master with a letter, subscribed by all the lords outlining the proceedings. The act was to be proclaimed in every shire. Parliament itself then became a peripatetic symbol of royal authority, moving on to Limerick and Trim. Henry VIII, as we can see here, uh, the anatomically impossible Henry VIII, he could not have been that big. He's, um, it, this is meant to, to, to impose. This, this hangs in the privy chamber in, in Whitehall, and spectators speak of feeling abashed and destroyed by the English. That's before meeting the king. So this man then, uh, this is from 1536, was very much the driving force behind the narrative that he and his heirs were kings, and that their kingship derived from original conquest. He got his message across in his own way. He did not come to Ireland for a coronation or a grand celebratory procession, though he probably should have done both. But the king did welcome to his court some of Ireland's leading political figures. O'Neill, famously, submitted before him at Greenwich in 1542 and was made an earl. His submission was printed in London, presumably for circulation. The following year saw Ireland's peerage grow still further as Henry made more nobles, only this time doing so in front of the peerage of England and a portion of Scotland's captured nobility, also captured at the Battle of Solway Moss. 
In this way, King Henry showed that he could indeed subdue the proud and spare the conquered without resorting to much violence or much expense. The imperial ambassador took notice of the changed nature of Henry's relationship with the Irish, precisely the optic which the old king sought to promote. Yet the idea and the office of kingship in an Irish context needed to be worked at and developed to maintain and enhance royal power and authority. Henry's children, this is the family of Henry VIII, um, were prepared to accept their father's achievement as self-evident and somehow self-perpetuating. Instead of promoting the mystery and majesty so central to their authority, they devoted their resources, if not their full attention, to consolidating and extending Tudor rule in institutional terms. The erection of a framework of English government was a necessity. The fact that the act for kingly title was to be proclaimed in every shire when more than half of Ireland was non-shire ground shows how much work needed to be done in 1541. In the end, the creation of a second kingdom was a great success of the later Tudors. Their great failure, it may be argued, was their inability to communicate their right to rule Ireland and their aims there. None of Henry's children came to Ireland, of course. This deprived them of the ability to communicate their authority in the traditional way, through their person, through their presence. Meantime, the number of lords coming to court from Ireland to experience the majesty of the crown and receive English titles fell off dramatically after the 1540s. Royal proclamations, as we have seen, were, were another means of communicating with their subjects in Ireland. It was impersonal, but it held the potential to reach the widest possible audience. Edward and Mary, however, did not issue a single royal proclamation, and early in her reign, Elizabeth did so only infrequently and, time, and in times of emergency. The, con the convening of Parliament, as we have seen, was a way to communicate with Ireland's political nation, at least. But that body was only summoned twice and met on only th in only three sessions in 26 years, between 1543 and 1569. The Kingdom of Ireland was emerging in institutional terms in these years, but the Crown was a distant presence in that process. By 1581, really rather pathetically, the Secretary of State for Ireland, Geoffrey Fenton, asked for a picture portrait of Elizabeth so that it might hang in the next Parliament to communicate pictorially, at least, what would not be communicated physically. I don't know, did he ever get the picture? Um, the establishment of a kingdom without a monarch to rule it was not without consequence. We get scenes such as this. It's difficult. This is famously from John Derrick's Image of Ireland. That's Sidney looking very magisterial with the sword of state beside him. Um, but as we'll see, this is part of the problem. The Tudor claim to rule became something which could be questioned. The Elizabethan regime appreciated this was a problem. It's very easy for me to sit here and point out what the Tudors did not do in hindsight, right? But it's important to note that they did appreciate that this was a problem. Shane O'Neill's rebellion and his offer to become a subject of the King of France had challenged Elizabeth's fundamental right to rule. At the 1569 Parliament, the Irish government deemed it necessary to articulate an official narrative of the Crown's title to Ireland. The Sydney-led government took the remarkable step of presenting Elizabeth and the nobility of England with the historical narrative of the, of the English Crown's title. Quote, to manifest proof to the world, the Queen's clear, sound, and unspotted titles to the whole body of this realm. Confusingly, they wrapped this narrative around the act for O'Neill's attainder. It departed from traditional Tudor understanding that the English crown's right to rule Ireland flowed simply and directly from Henry II's conquest. That king, Henry II, was still held up as, quote, the first conqueror of this realm. But this new narrative, as Kieran Brady has shown, 
was keen to demonstrate both that the crown's claim predated by centuries Henry II, and that English rule was something to which Ireland's native inhabitants had consented to, first in the 12th century and repeatedly thereafter, thinking of Richard II and so on. A more significant departure was the suggestion that the English conquest begun by Henry II was finally at an end under Elizabeth. Quote, in whose happy days this 404 years conquest began is now ended and brought to honorable pass without any great effusion of blood. My sense is that Sidney and others in the Irish administration were the chief, chief authors of and impetus behind this new articulation of the Anglo-Irish relationship. Clearly, though, the Queen accepted the narrative as presented by her Parliament. Yet convincing Elizabeth of the legitimacy of her title to Ireland was one thing. Convincing the population of Ireland was another. For while the Parliament spoke proudly of how the Queen's rule now had, quote, free concourse throughout the kingdom, rebellion was in fact afoot in Munster, where a group of lords offered Ireland's crown to Philip II. The rebellion was crushed, ruthlessly, and the business of extending Tudor rule resumed, only more intensely. O'Neill's attainder opened the possibility of carrying royal authority into Ulster. Another act empowered the governor to shire Irish lordships, a huge weapon in the hands of the viceroy. The march of English government served to drown out the message of a completed conquest, which the Sydney administration had clearly sought to promote. The institutions of an Irish kingdom, the new counties, offices of local government, assize circuits, provincial administrations came hand in hand with English colonies. The prohibition of the culture and religion of the majority of the population, the death and destruction wrought by frequent military campaigns, and the often unbridled use of martial law. All of this looked very much like conquest, both to people in Tudor times and to historians ever since. By the time Elizabeth issued a proclamation, say the one in the 1580s, um, issued her proclamation in the 1580s and 1590s to communicate her aims, it was too late. She had lost control of the narrative, which for too long she had accepted as self-evident, yet which was, clearly in hindsight, an important prop for Tudor rule. To conclude, communication represents um, what I hope is a new and exciting means of exploring how the Tudors made their power and authority felt in Ireland. If taxation has been likened to the nerves of the early modern English state, and the political and bureaucratic institutions which later emerged to meet the demands of that state's wars described as the sinews of its power, then we might say that communication was the life's blood of the state, flowing from the lips of its messengers and in the letters and documents which they carried through its vein-like postal roads, animating the decisions and policies of royal government, while also reaffirming the state's existence and reach through to its extremities. At the same time, there were less tangible manifestations of communication. The control and propagation of the crown's message and the projection of its power for instance, the Elizabethans understood their importance, but nevertheless struggled to seize hold of and employ them to their advantage. Nowhere in the Tudor territories was communication more essential for the success of royal government than in Ireland. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, 
visit the conference website at tutorstuartarnon.com.